Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the NHS at 75, a birthday that comes with warnings that the institution, like many of the people it serves, is showing signs of ageing badly. The health service is arguably a victim of its own success, with people generally living longer than in previous generations, but with conditions that require long-term care, dementia, diabetes, heart disease and so on. A combination of austerity and the pandemic has left waiting lists for non-emergency operations at record high levels. So too is health inequality, which means that a man in parts of Blackpool will die on average 17 years earlier than a counterpart in a posh part of London. Former Labour Prime Minister Tony Blair is calling for an expanded role for the private sector in a new paper for his think tank. We'll be discussing this with Chris Thomas, head of the Commission on Health and Prosperity at the IPPR, a left-leaning think tank, and Dr Andrew Mayerson, who is an A&E doctor in East London. First, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. Get details about subscriptions over at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Chris and Dr. Mayerson. Uh, Andrew, you come from the United States and work now in East London in the NHS was the NHS part of what attracted you to this country? Absolutely, it was. I love the NHS. Sincerely, I really do. And it takes somebody who didn't grow up in this country to now have that same passion, that same love for it. If you're not a patient who has received care and you know it saved your life or supported you when you had illness. I have a great love for the NHS because when I see my patients every day, I don't have to ask them for a credit card before I treat them. I don't have to worry about how they're going to fund it. I don't have to worry about giving them the more expensive medicine because they can't afford it. Or I don't have to worry about getting on the phone with their insurance company and arguing with a non-clinician about the level of care that my patient deserves. That is an enormous privilege that people in this country have. And I value it as a clinician and also as a patient. I'm making about four times less here than if I were in the States, but this is the correct model of healthcare delivery, one that 10 years ago was proven to be the number one, the best, most efficient, most effective healthcare system on the entire planet. And coming from where I come from, from the United States, where we have 30 million people without any health insurance at all, we have something like 50 million people who are underinsured, meaning that they only have catastrophic health insurance that, you know, if they get ill or they get hit by a car, they have to fork out the first $10,000 of their medical bills before the insurance will kick in. And all those people have to pay fees to go see their GP, fees to get prescriptions, pay fees for really everything. To the point, it, it keeps a lot of people out of the healthcare system and it denies healthcare to people, you know, when this should be a human right. And in the States, we have something like uh, 500,000 medical bankruptcies every single year because people's medical bills just drive them into the ground financially. And sure. We're very often presented with this kind of binary choice in this country between very heavily privatized US style healthcare and yeah. the NHS. But I mean, there are. Examples in the middle, as it were, private healthcare insurance underpinned by the state, the kind of model that we see in other developed social democracies, Germany, Scandinavia, yeah. and so on. 
Yeah, absolutely. There are a number of different ways to deliver healthcare. And the reason why I believe so firmly in the public nature of the NHS is because if the NHS was ranked somewhere in the middle or below as a healthcare system, then I would say, you know what, if there are structural problems with the NHS that cause us to not be able to deliver good care, or it's too expensive, um, or it's too ineffective, then fine, I would be amenable to a discussion about transforming this to perhaps some other model. But that's not the case. It was ranked number one globally. We had the best healthcare system on the planet. And so there is absolutely nothing wrong with the model that we have. It's just, this is, this, the, you know, what patients are seeing right now, and 7.4 million people on the NHS waiting list, the longest in NHS history. There was a Financial Times piece from a couple of months ago, 40 billion pounds was taken out of the NHS for the last decade. That's how much it was underfunded compared to Germany, compared to France. Healthcare, it's expensive and it requires long-term planning. It requires long-term funding. And this government for the last 10 years has completely dropped the ball. We look at all of the evidence from what they've done, from what they've said, from their policies. They don't care about patients in this country. That is not the interest. They only care about the expansion of a private healthcare sector in this country. And we're seeing that now. The Cleveland Clinic, a massive, hugely important American hospital in, in Cleveland, they, in the last couple of years, they have a brand new hospital right next to, uh, to Buckingham Palace. Patients are seeing ads for private GP services, for other private services. And this is the plan. Run down the public system force poor people and working people to have this delayed and denied care while wealthy people can afford access to rapid, high-quality health care. That's unacceptable at this point in time in the sixth wealthiest country on the planet. And especially after 10 years ago, we were doing so well. But this is what happens when you have an incredibly efficient system that you pull that much money out of it. You have no plan for workforce. You have no plan for staff. And you have no vision for an NHS that takes care of patients. They are trying to raid the system for their own financial benefit, not for the benefit of patients. Rishi Sunak did unveil a new plan for the training of GPs very recently. Chris, this drumbeat of greater private involvement in the NHS is getting ever louder, isn't it? And I think ever since David Cameron's time as Prime Minister, the Conservatives have insisted that they are the party of free treatment at the point of use, but the role of private sector organisations within the NHS has grown. That's not unique to the Conservatives. When Alan Milburn was Health Secretary under Tony Blair, waiting lists were reduced by use of the available private beds as well. But there is this insistent message coming through, it seems to me, that we need a greater role for private healthcare within the NHS. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there are two dynamics to this. The first is the calls to use private healthcare capacity, essentially to supplement and complement NHS capacity. I think ultimately the problem with that argument is that all the evidence that we see is that private healthcare has a number of disadvantages to the NHS. It's firstly more expensive, so it tends to be less efficient. Secondly, it also tends to be less transparent. And this is a real problem that private healthcare tends to lean towards in a way that public services don't, towards cherry picking patients that are lower complexity tend to be more affluent. So it can sometimes widen health inequalities as well. So I think for those reasons, it's not a preferable thing to just having the capacity in the public sector and having the capacity in the NHS to do this directly. I don't know why we'd want a more mixed model. Although in the short term, if you've got a need that needs doing or a hit that needs doing, these are the kind of operations very often that private healthcare providers 
carry out for the NHS. And if you're on that waiting list and there is spare capacity and there's funding available, then as a patient, you might think, bring it on. I mean, the question for me is why have we got into a situation where if if that's the more expensive option, if it's the less efficient option, if, if it's less regulated and less transparent, why we've got into a situation where the NHS doesn't have the capacity to do that itself. And we've already had mentioned that over the last 10 years, we've seen the UK spend less on public health care than comparable nations. And if the ultimate consequence of that is that we have to have a model of healthcare where actually we pay more and we get worse outcomes because we've moved to a mixed model, I'm not sure that makes total sense. And I mean, I think there's another worrying dynamic to this, a sting in the tail, so to speak, which is that we're seeing more and more people, you know, not necessarily through government funded use of private healthcare capacity, but actually by paying themselves use of private healthcare. And the thing that our research shows today is that as much as the NHS is important for lives, it's a matter of life and death, it's also really important for our livelihoods. And if our life chances become wedded to whether we've got the means to pay for healthcare when we get a health condition or we need it, then I think not only could health inequalities widen, but in the way that we see the two-tier model of education sustain really big societal inequalities, well, actually this could start to play into a much bigger picture of injustice, which would be a really worrying new normal for the country as a whole. And your research shows, I think, that as many as one in three people have found it difficult to access healthcare on the NHS since 2020. I mean, that's a, that's a really significant and quite scary statistic. Yeah, particularly given that that statistic isn't of people that try to use NHS healthcare. That's the whole population. That's of all of us. So some people won't have needed healthcare and that factored in. So I think that's scary. And I think the trajectory that we're seeing is that that would scale to the equivalent of 17 to 18 million people who have had some disruption, some difficulty with NHS healthcare over the last, let's say, three and a half years. And in turn, those people have faced really severe consequences. So we've got to remember, I think, in these conversations around why good healthcare is so important, that for those people, it's made it more difficult for them to maintain social relationships, to do the things that make life meaningful, hobbies, passions, but also thinking about their economic lives, it's made it more difficult to find and stay in good jobs, uh, to maintain their financial security during cost of living crisis. Um, kind of people are linking this directly to us in terms of the consequences directly from that disrupted healthcare. And that means that we have a situation where it's bad for the health of the country, and there's real tangible consequences there, but it's also really bad for the prosperity of the country. We could end up in quite a vicious cycle, I think, where the lack of health and healthcare that we have is a headwind to the economy. And then we have a political argument that we can't afford healthcare. And so we don't get the investment that we need and we get into this bind that we can't break where we need investment in healthcare, but also the economy, uh, the argument is that it's not sustaining it. And I think what we need at this point, what the 75th anniversary of the NHS really calls for, is someone to have the political courage to reverse that argument and say, actually, if we want a thriving economy, if people want thriving, flourishing lives, then the precondition for that is healthcare. We need to get that right. Andrew, you've suggested that this is a, a deliberate government policy to downgrade the NHS. Let me put to you a, a kind of more generous interpretation of where we are. The coalition government took over in 2010 when the country was broke following the financial crash. They then followed years of austerity, which I recognise was a, a political choice, followed then by the pandemic, which put huge strains on health services 
across Europe, across the developed world, and indeed in the uh, the less developed world as well. So it wasn't unique to Britain. So what you describe as a deliberate policy to downgrade the NHS may just be a combination of unfortunate circumstances. If I put that to you, do you think am I am I just being naive? I think so, perhaps. Uh, uh, based on the evidence, yes. And Chris, by the way, loved everything that you said. I couldn't agree more with really everything that you had just spoken about. There are two options here, I think. If, if you look at the breadth of a conservative government policy and from the coalition government, if you look at their policies and look at their actions over the last 10 years, either they have absolutely no idea what they are doing, or it is a deliberate plan in order to run the NHS down, in order to increase the private sector. And, you know, it's basically they, they see it as, oh, growing the economy and the trade-offs aren't that bad. Some patients will be harmed, but it's not that bad. If you just look at the 2012 health and social care bill that was pushed through uh, despite near universal opposition from all of the medical colleges and all of the health experts and, and major health publications in this country as well. This was Andrew was Lansley's bill when he was health secretary. Yes. Um, that a couple of years later, there was a headline in the Times from 2014, October, I think, that said that NHS reforms are our worst mistake, Tories admit. And the whole plan of that was to break the NHS up, make it easier for private companies to take NHS contracts, and to separate into 42 different areas of the country, to, to break up the NHS and fragment it in this way, to make it easier for private companies to come in and... You know, and we've seen what the consequences of the last 10 years are with this, with the reduction in funding, with this absence of a workforce plan, allowing our staff vacancies to balloon to massive, massive numbers. When you pull that much money out of the system, when you close that many hospitals, when you close that many hospital beds, when you have no plan for staff, and also the big issue is social care is a mess. Those four issues are just, you know, you look at them, this government has done nothing but just sit on their hands for the last 10 years. And you have to think that, you know, the, I don't think that these people are dumb. I have to believe that this is intentional. This was a plan, especially given what the, a lot of these people have written about, that they do not believe in this model of healthcare delivery. They believe much more closely to what we have back in America. And all of the evidence tells us that they are wrong, that this is not the right way to go, that this is going to be a waste of taxpayer money. Um, and see a massive reduction in the quality of the health care that they receive. And that's just unacceptable. And so, no, I, I can't see it as anything else but being a deliberate policy to run down the system in order to, to prop up the private sector and grow the private sector. And yet, Andrew, I mean, we know that to seek to damage the NHS, to intentionally seek to damage the NHS, as you allege, would surely be electoral suicide. The great British public love the NHS. And they may not be too purist about where their health is delivered, but I would suggest that the vast majority of them do believe in universal access to healthcare, free at the point of delivery. So any political party which would seek certainly to openly challenge that would surely be doing themselves down at the ballot box, wouldn't they? Well, that's why they will privatize a service and then basically just stick a an NHS logo on it. Sort of like Trump taking over a hotel and just putting his name on it and licensing the name of, of his organization to a hotel. It's a veneer. A, an NHS contract that goes out to a private company and they skim 20% off money that would be coming in that could be reinvested into the system. It's not a place where they train NHS staff. 
and it does it widens this health inequality in this country and they will always say that we're not privatizing it they will always say it will always be free at the point of use but then they're doing so many other things to deeply damage the health of the system and in so doing the health of the population and from the perspective of a clinician I see services that have been taken away from the hospital, that taken away from the ambulance service, and it degrades the quality of the service. It runs it down and doesn't help patients. This idea that private sector can come in and help us in this way, it's a pipe dream. You look at the size of the private sector, how many doctors work in the private sector versus in the NHS, and the composition of those clinicians that work in the private sector. A lot of them are NHS doctors and nurses who work there to gain a little bit more money. We're talking about relatively small numbers of people of capacity compared to the larger NHS. And so the answer is not to fund the public money into the private sector that, you know, as Chris said, has less regulation, less oversight, and will cherry pick their best cases, but leave the most expensive and difficult ones to the NHS to handle. That's not the answer. The answer is having that political courage, as Chris mentioned, to to say, you know what, if we want to have a healthy population, if we want to have a wealthy population, then we need to invest in their health care. You know, for every pound that is invested in the NHS, we get a return in the economy of, you know, of four pounds. And that means people staying healthier, able to work longer, people taking fewer benefits. It is a driver of economic growth that we need to reinvest in. And that needs to be the commitment of any government that takes over next to say, you know what, if we want to have a vibrant economy, then we need to have a healthy population in order to function well. And it's so difficult to hear a lot of the talk also from labor, that money's off the table, that they're not talking about major reinvestment in the NHS. You know, we, we, we're in the whole, you know, tens of billions of pounds now uh, because of the neglect, the deep neglect, you know, criminal grade neglect that I would say from this government for last, from the last 10 years. Chris, you've done some research, I know, around the NHS workforce, and Rishi Sunak oh. made this £2.4 billion pledge recently to try and plug the black hole in staffing that the NHS faces, trying to increase the numbers of GPs in training, the number of nurses in training, dentists, and so on. So the government does acknowledge that there are issues with the NHS and is talking about putting in significant sums of public money into uh, grappling with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that in releasing that workforce plan, there were two good things. First was to see some honest assessment of just how big the shortages that we face are and how much those might grow in the next 10 to 15 years. And the other one is the expansion of recruitment. It's baffling, isn't it, that we've spent 10 years with massive shortages and knowing that we have huge vacancy rates in the NHS, but an artificial cap on how many people we're willing to train in the UK. That's a political cap, a political decision, but it's good to see, albeit a little bit late, that, that that's been loosened. But I think probably the, the worry for me is there are a couple of things that are quite challenging. The first is that the amount of money going in that 2.4 billion, well, that doesn't account for, you know, does does some of the individual policies in terms of training, recruitment, that kind of thing, doesn't account for how big the expansion of health and care workforce needs to be. And I think the real missed opportunity here is that we could have seen government commit to, you know, a vision for the economy that has health and care as a sector, as an industry, much more centrally, you know, kind of as an opportunity to have a vibrant labour force and, and all those kinds of good things they could have put out at the heart of their economic vision, but that didn't happen. I think 
maybe the biggest oversight is that whilst recruitment uh, uh, was there and, and then in term retention was mentioned, there wasn't nearly enough on retention. And at the moment, we have a model of work in the NHS that is actively making the people that work in the service sick. The number of people who are leaving NHS jobs because of their mental health, but also because of things like long COVID, is just extraordinary. So uh, are we at risk of creating a, a leaky bucket? You know, it's being topped up, but leaking very fast at the same time. And, and in turn, you know, our experienced professionals that are meant to do the training, that are meant to bring new doctors through, they're not there. That's a very difficult situation to get to. But surely overwhelmingly the biggest challenge there and the limit on how aspirational, how long-term this vision can really be seen is that for all the talk of integration, of coordinating health and social care, that we now have a long-term workforce strategy for the NHS, but no strategy for social care and no sense of how it interacts. And there's a lot of big opportunities that leaves on the table. We yeah, spent a lot of, of the last couple of years speaking to the workforce themselves around what they wanted to see one of the things they really wanted was opportunities to work across health and social care so you have social care workers working half their week say in social care settings half their week in nhs settings and really building that integration that cross understanding that collaboration that feels ultimately missing we were promised kind of once in a lifetime change in taxation to deal with the social care problem with which, as you say, many of the issues of the health service are linked, but we've now had some pretty severe backtracking on that. It's very easy, Chris, to say, I'm not saying this to denigrate it, by the way, but to say that the NHS should be better funded over and above improved funding. Does it need yet another restructuring? Does it need to be looked at and viewed in a different way than it is now? Yeah, it's a really good question. On the funding point, I think you're right. It's not the only solution, but certainly I would say that we should aspire as a country, I would argue, to spend more on healthcare. And surely the whole point of pursuing a good economy and the kind of going for growth lines that we've heard from both government and opposition, surely that's pointless if it's not for something and, and providing ever better healthcare must be part of that. But I do think you're right that we need to think about the model of healthcare that we have. And something that worries me is that often when people say the NHS needs reform, they somewhat suggest there's only one pathway that that can take, and that's away from the founding principles. I think that's wrong. I think what's happened is that since the NHS was formed, the health of this country and the kind of health needs we have have changed fundamentally. Tuberculosis in 1948 was one of the biggest killers that we faced. Infectious diseases were incredibly pertinent as a threat. But today, in many cases, thanks to brilliant scientific advances, it's long-term conditions. It's multiple long-term conditions that we'll live with for a very long time. Those are the key threat, not things that will kill us very immediately a lot of the time. What that means for me is that whereas we had a very hospital-led model of the NHS in the 1940s, and that was an you know, entirely appropriate solution to the challenges that the government at the time were facing, Today, we need a slightly different model that is still true to those founding principles, but it is more appropriate in terms of providing that long-term care. And I think that model probably does more on prevention. It has a role for the NHS, not just at the point of sickness, but also in proactively kind of supporting people's health through their lifetimes. Surely, if long-term conditions are the problem, we need to put primary care at the front and centre of the NHS. It's strange to me that we've continued to maintain, since the NHS was formed, this kind of self-employed cottage industry of primary care, rather than really bring it into the NHS, and, and that feels like a massive oversight. And it would do more in care. 
uh, and that's community care, that's mental health, but it's also making sure that there's a fit for purpose social care system. And the really interesting thing about each of those points is that that is an intersection of what's good for people and their health, what's most appropriate for them. But it's also where we can make sure that financial sustainability is there. The best things are often the most cost effective things. The problem is, is that they need, as Andrew has been talking about, to get their long term thought, long term transition and really lack that over the last 10 to 15 years. I couldn't agree more. In politics, you have politicians who are just trying to win the next headline or the next election. And that has created a massive problem for the system. We need people who will think in a long-term way, who will say, you know what, in order to improve, if you have an authentic responsibility and desire to improve the healthcare of this country, then we need a workforce plan, one that's you know discussed with all of the health professionals as well. Because with this plan, there's a lot of de-skilling they want to take what is normally a five or six year medical degree and truncate that to a four year degree. I did a four year graduate entry program here in the UK, but that was only because I did two years of preliminary study of all of the science behind this back in the United States. And so my total training was six years. They want to take that and they want to create a workforce that is de-skilled, that doesn't have good training, that is not respected internationally. And there are huge concerns with this particular plan. But on top of this, we need a plan for all of these things. We need the government to have the political courage to say we need to increase funding because we need to invest in our health. We need to increase the number of beds and we need to prevent the hemorrhage of staff right now. It's drawing a bath and running the tap at its highest point when you don't have the plug-in. So there's no point in training more staff only to have them go and work in Australia. You know, Rishi Sunak is doing a fantastic job at recruiting NHS doctors to go work in Australia and New Zealand. When pain conditions are this terrible, when we are having to do, you know, night shifts and long shifts to see death and expose ourselves to disease and terrible mental health, every couple of weeks, a couple of doctors that will kill themselves. I think it's like two a week or something like that. We lost a registrar recently to suicide. It's becoming far too difficult to work in the NHS right now. And we, we need a government with a long-term focus, a long-term plan, and an authentic understanding of their responsibility, of their obligations to protect the health and well-being of this population. We are not seeing that with this government. So that's why we need to fight for one that will. Andrew, thank you. Dr. Andrew Mayerson. Thanks also to Chris Thomas from the IPPR. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. For details about subscriptions, head over to bylinetimes.com. This was a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times, produced by me and by Harvey White. Thank you very much indeed for listening. We'll see you again very soon. And happy birthday, NHS. Cheers now. Bye-bye.